his most searing experiences came at school. For a long time, he was the youngest and smallest student in his class. He had trouble picking up social cues. Empathy did not come naturally, and he had neither the desire nor the instinct to be ingratiating. As a result, he was regularly picked on by bullies who would come up and punch him in the face. If you have never been punched in the nose, you have no idea how it affects you the rest of your life. But those scars were minor compared to the emotional ones inflicted by his father, Erol Musk. He has a Jekyll and Hyde nature, they say. One minute he would be friendly, the next he would launch into an hour or more of unrelenting abuse. He would end every tirade by telling Elon how pathetic he was. Elon would just have to stand there, not allowed to leave. It was mental torture, Elon says, pausing for a long time and choking up slightly. He sure knew how to make anything terrible. That is from Walter Isaacson's brand new book, Elon Musk. It is a phenomenal biography on the legend himself, Elon Musk. Whether you love him or you hate him, obviously he's a very divisive figure. He has certainly had a massive impact on our lives today. He has created two of the greatest hard sciences-based companies in the last century through Tesla and SpaceX. And as we know, recently he's had numerous other endeavors such as owning Twitter, building Neuralink, the boring company, multiple other projects on the side. So across this episode, we'll discuss many of the key traits that make up who Elon Musk is and how he makes these day-to-day decisions split between so many various companies to achieve success again and again. We will see Elon Musk is the ultimate risk taker, and he is someone who's always willing to keep doubling down, betting on his future to accomplish his world-changing mission. I'm so excited to jump into the life of Elon Musk. If your father is always calling you a moron and an idiot, maybe the only response is to turn off anything inside that would have opened up an emotional dimension that he didn't have tools to deal with. This emotional shutoff valve could make him callous, but it also made him a risk-seeking innovator. He learned to shut down fear. If you turn off fear, then maybe you have to turn off other things, like joy or empathy. The PTSD from his childhood also instilled in him an aversion to contentment. I just don't think he knows how to savor success and smell the flowers, says Claire Boucher, or the artist known as Grimes, who is the mother of three of his children. I think he got conditioned in childhood that life 
is pain. Musk agrees. Adversity shaped me. My pain threshold became very high. So Walter Isaacson would describe how Musk had a very challenging childhood. He grew up in South Africa. It was very violent of a country. And even worse, he was being raised by a father who would practically verbally abuse him. As we spoke about in that intro passage, he had this Jekyll and Hyde nature. Sometimes he would be friendly to Elon, and sometimes he would just lash out at him, tell him, you are pathetic, you're worthless. So this childhood effect, it caused Elon Musk to really not think about fear and not think about contentment. Instead, he started seeking out risk. As Walter Isaacson would describe, he called it Elon Musk's demon mode. This is the way that Elon would try to avoid becoming or being his father. He would go into this demon mode. He wouldn't think about the fear. He would go out to great lengths, take massive risks. And these were things we'll see. They will continue to evolve throughout his career. Peter Thiel, one of the co-founders with him for PayPal, would say, Elon wants risk for its own sake. He seems to enjoy it. Indeed, at times, be addicted to it. So we will see across this episode, Elon Musk has this core nature being addicted to risk and addicted to drama. And I think a lot of that comes from his childhood experiences. Being raised by kind of an unstable, unsupportive father, he went and sought out more risk. He sought out ways that he could escape his traumatic childhood. So when he was a kid, he would be experimenting with rockets. There wasn't as much oversight. He would build explosives, kind of retreat into his own world, not really pay attention to those around him, retreat into his own world, play video games. And he had a lot of trouble making friends, not having this stable role model, really. Kimball and Tosca, his siblings, would make friends on the first day and bring them home. But Elon never brought friends home. He wanted to have friends, but he just didn't know how. As a result, he was lonely, very lonely. And that pain remained seared into his soul. When I was a child, there's one thing I said. I never want to be alone. That's what I would say. I don't want to be alone. So these tough experiences as a kid caused Elon Musk to go the complete opposite direction as an adult. We are noticing how he was being very lonely, wasn't really making friends when he was young. And then later on as an adult, we're going to see that he takes on multiple different life partners. He goes through a few different divorces, has numerous kids across different life partners. And that is part of this initial idea that he never wanted to be alone. Even though he's super busy, always working his ass off with his companies, he still does not want to be alone. And part of it also was having that very poor role model. Going back to his father, his father was not only verbally abusive and psychologically abusive to his kids, but he was also that to his own wife, Elon's mother. 
So Isaacson would write in the book how Erol would hit Elon's mother. He would cheat on her with younger girls. They had this very tumultuous relationship. And eventually, when Elon Musk turned eight years old, they ended up getting in a divorce. So they get in a divorce. It's only two years later that Elon Musk, he actually feels bad for his father. So he decides to go and live with his father. He has to take on the bunt of this pathological liar personality. Everything could be super. Then, within a second, he would be vicious and spewing abuse. It was almost as if he had a split personality. One minute, he would be super friendly, Kimball says, and the next, he would be screaming at you, lecturing you for hours, literally two or three hours while he forced you to just stand there, calling you worthless, pathetic, making scarring and evil comments, not allowing you to leave. This reminded me of the scene between Michael Jordan and his father when he was young. Michael Jordan's father would tell him, get in the house with the women. He would play basketball with MJ's older brother, Larry, and he would say, get in the house with the women. And I think these small one lines or verbal abuses by fathers, like Michael Jordan's father, get in the house with the women, or Elon Musk's father, calling him worthless, pathetic. These are the things that will end up driving these great people, great innovators for years and years. These are the things that gave Elon Musk his later addiction to risk in his demon mode drive. So as a kid, those hadn't really been developed yet. Really, as a child, he had to find some type of escape so he wouldn't be thinking about these evil, vicious comments all the time. And the main escape he found was through reading. Reading remained Musk's psychological retreat. Sometimes he would immerse himself in books all afternoon in most of the night, nine hours at a stretch. When the family went to someone's house, he would disappear into the host's library. When they went into town, he would wander off and later be found at a bookstore sitting on the floor in his own world. These books were literally expanding his imagination at this young time when you really believe anything is possible. He started picking up science fiction books like A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or the Isaac Asimov books. He picked up these foundational books, no pun intended, and these were the ways that he ended up seeing rocket space technology and crazy innovations that he would later try to accomplish himself. So this habit of reading was a direct result of him trying to escape the vicious comments by his father. The other big habit that he picked up at this young age was the act of programming. It was when he was 11 years old, Elon Musk found a computer. He saw his first computer and he worked multiple small jobs so he could save up some money and buy his own computer. He ends up finally 
getting enough money, saves up in his piggy bank, buys a Commodore VIC-20, and this is really the beginning of his programming journey. The computer came with a course in how to program in BASIC that involved 60 hours of lessons. I did it in three days, barely sleeping. That's something we'll see again and again. Elon Musk somehow never sleeps. A few months later, he tore out an ad for a conference on personal computers at a university and told his father he wanted to attend. When Erol came to pick him up at the end, he found Elon engaging with three of the professors. This boy must get a new computer, one of them declared. Right after that time is when he created his first video game, programmed himself, this game called Blastar, and he was only 13 years old. So he was this true talent in coding, and he was developing this critical reading habit directly because of some of his worst experiences as a child. Now, right before he was turning 18, Musk finally felt ready to leave his father's grasp. He wanted to move from South Africa to Canada, and he got one little bit of inspiration from his father. You'll be back in a few months, Elon says his father told him contemptuously. You'll never be successful. What a way to leave your country. Your father telling you, you'll never be successful. Elon goes with the rest of his family to Toronto, everyone except his dad, as you could imagine, and he soon begins college. And it was during one of these college summer internships, he was working at Scotia Bank, where he discovered what he felt like was this really lucrative bond trade. It was a Latin America bond trade. He felt like it would be an easy win because they would be backed by the U.S. Brady bonds. But when he brought this to his senior managers at the bank, he was quickly shot down by their management. And he started to see that he felt like there was a stupid reason his easy trade was getting shot down. The explanation they gave him was that too much money had already been allocated to Latin American bonds, so they simply weren't willing to put more money into this asset class. And Elon Musk, he heard this excuse and he's like, that makes no sense. This looks like to me an easy money-making trade. Why aren't they willing to do this? Well, it was times like this that convinced Musk that he needs to be an entrepreneur. Musk also drew another lesson from his time at Scotia Bank. He did not like, nor was he good at, working for other people. It was not in his nature to be deferential or to assume that others might know more than he did. So after this internship, he ends up actually transferring to University of Pennsylvania. He goes to Penn to study physics and I think also either majored or minored in one of the business econ degrees. I don't remember which one it was, but in the back of his mind, we know he's thinking about this entrepreneur mentality. 
And what's crazy is that even back then, as he was an undergrad at Penn, he had this long-term vision of space travel and EVs, electric vehicles. These were things that he had an eye on ever since he was like 20 years old. Isaacson would share, whether he was calibrating the force of gravity or analyzing the properties of materials, he would discuss with Wren how the laws of physics applied to building rockets. He kept talking about making a rocket that could go to Mars, Wren recalls. Of course, I didn't pay much attention because I thought he was fantasizing. Musk also focused on electric cars. He and Wren would grab lunch from one of the food trucks and sit on the campus lawn, where Musk would read academic papers on batteries. He's a college kid, and he's reading academic papers on batteries. California had just passed a requirement mandating that 10% of vehicles by 2003 had to be electric. I want to go make that happen. Elon Musk, we are seeing, has no limiting beliefs whatsoever. This is college Elon Musk. I thought about the things that will truly affect humanity. I came up with three. The internet, sustainable energy, and space travel. In the summer of 1995, it became clear to him that the first of these, the internet, was not going to wait for him to finish graduate school. So Musk was about to start a PhD program at Stanford, and this 1990s, mid-90s rise of the dot-com boom led him to pursue a internet startup instead. And his first internet startup, it's probably the one least discussed, was this idea of a virtual yellow pages. He named the company Zip2, and what it basically meant was zip to where you want to go. And the best way to envision really what he was creating in this first product was that it was like a very light version of Google Maps before Google Maps was created. Some of the best innovations come from combining two previous innovations. The idea that Elon and Kimball had in early 1995, just as the web was starting to grow exponentially, was simple. Put a searchable directory of businesses online and combine it with map software that would give users directions to them. Not everyone saw the potential. Right away, Musk and his brother thought up a pretty smart go-to-market strategy where instead of going directly to businesses, the direct retail or restaurant businesses to gain some of those advertising dollars and be put on their network, they sold to newspapers instead. They had figured that many of these newspapers have existing relationships with many of the local businesses in an area. Those local businesses likely advertise in the local newspaper. So Zip2, Elon Musk, was able to go to many local newspapers, fill up the demand for numerous businesses, and he was able to create a really functioning company 
within just a couple years. So a lot of it was a smart go-to-market strategy. Another big component that we saw from his earliest days was his hardcore work ethic. From the very beginning of his career, Musk was a demanding manager, contemptuous of the concept of work-life balance. At Zip2 and at every subsequent company, he drove himself relentlessly all day and through much of the night without vacations, and he expected others to do the same. When the other engineers went home, Musk would sometimes take the code they were working on and rewrite it. With his weak empathy gene, he didn't realize or care that correcting someone publicly, or as he put it, fixing their fucking stupid code was not a path to endearment. He had never been a captain of a sports team or the leader of a gang of friends, and he lacked an instinct for camaraderie. Like Steve Jobs, he genuinely did not care if he offended or intimidated the people he worked with. As long as he drove them to accomplish feats they thought were impossible. It's not your job to make people on your team love you. So he rallied his troops around his hardcore work ethic. He had this newspaper go-to-market strategy, and Zip2 was able to find a lot of early success. In only 1999, four years after they started the company, he decided to actually sell the company to Compaq for $307 million. This was a time that he had built up an initial distrust of venture capitalists. They actually replaced him as CEO while he was founding Zip2. So he lost the control. We're going to see control is very important for Elon Musk. And they disagreed a lot with his strategic vision for the company. So these were some of the instigators that led him to just want to sell Zip2. Focus on the next startup that to him, he would be able to have full control of. So Musk walked away from the Zip2 sale with roughly $21, $22 million, and now he was ready for his next thing. He said, I'm going to put almost all of it back into a new game. His concept for X.com was grand. It would be a one-stop everything store for all financial needs. Banking, digital purchases, checking, credit cards, investments, and loans. Transactions would be handled instantly with no waiting for payments to clear. His insight was that money is simply an entry into a database, and he wanted to devise a way that all transactions were securely recorded in real time. So this new company that Elon Musk ended up creating was X.com, this one-stop shop type of financial company, or at least that was the vision that he originally set out to accomplish. And I covered these years in great detail on the PayPal episodes. If you want to learn more about this period in Elon Musk's life, I recommend listening to episode 16. That's the book by Jimmy Sony and episode 17, where I had Jimmy Sony 
come onto the podcast. So I just wanted to share some of the highlights of that PayPal series because it still helps to show this evolution of who Elon Musk becomes as he's leading up to his SpaceX and Tesla days. So at the time, he's creating this company, X.com, which is supposed to be a one-stop shop for all your financial needs. He wants to basically take over the payments world with practically a super app. And he started to see that a lot of his success back then in the late 90s, early 2000s was with an email payments, like a peer-to-peer payments integration, especially what happened on eBay. And at the time, he was competing with another big company in the exact same space. That company was called Confinity, and they had an email payments product called PayPal. So this is really the origin story of PayPal. It is where Elon Musk's company, X.com, and PayPal slowly over that year, around 2000, start to merge because they realize if they keep competing, they are both going to simply run out of resources. By the late summer of 2000, Levchin found Musk increasingly difficult to deal with. He wrote Musk long memos outlining how fraud was threatening to bankrupt the company, one of them incongruously titled Fraud is Love. But all he got in response were terse dismissals. When Levchin developed the first commercial use of CAPTCHA technology to prevent automated fraud, Musk showed little interest. So at this point, Musk's company X.com had now merged with Max Levchin and Peter Thiel's company, Confinity, and although they had this hugely successful product under the PayPal brand, Musk was still trying to focus the entire company on being that one-stop financial super app. That was really the whole goal he wanted to create. We know he's always attracted to these big grand missions. So in this period, in the early 2000s, he was pushing the company towards the super app mission and everyone around him was trying to tell him, what are you doing? Let's focus on what's working so well. Our PayPal product is killing it. How about we focus on that? We are also getting crushed by fraud right now. So we have bigger fish to fry, but we have bigger problems to solve than simply trying to create this wide, expansive super app. Roloff Botha, who was one of the core members of this PayPal mafia team, would describe how to them, this really made no sense. Entrepreneurs are actually not risk takers. They're risk mitigators. They don't thrive on risk. They never seek to amplify it. Instead, they try to figure out the controllable variables and minimize their risk, but not Musk. He was into amplifying risk and burning the boats so we can never retreat from it. So Botha is describing how Musk had this very safe product, this what we would consider risk-mitigated product in the PayPal email payments platform, and that was killing it on eBay. It was blowing up. 
So this was really the safe, risk-mitigated product, and yet he is pursuing all of the grander visions. He had that addiction to risk. He always wants to be building a bigger and bigger company, going for the larger and larger mission. So he was going for the financial super app vision. And the result of this, the result of not listening to his teammates, not going for the risk-mitigated PayPal product was that he got kicked out. The rest of the PayPal mafia decided to stage a coup against him as he was going to his honeymoon. Over the next couple of years, Musk had to watch the PayPal team execute from the sidelines, but luckily, everything still ended up working out for him. It still turned out to be a happy outcome for him. Because only two years later, in 2002, PayPal ended up getting sold to eBay themselves. That was the network that they were having so much success on. Much of their payment volume came from the eBay transactions. So naturally, they saw that as the best outlet after their IPO. And with this sale, Musk was able to walk away with a huge cash outcome. He walked away with about $250 million and now truly the freedom to pursue his big passions, the big passions that we know he's had since his college days. Now he was ready to tackle electric vehicles and space travel. It was too expensive, of course, for a private person to build a rocket. Or was it? Exactly what were the basic physical requirements? All that was needed, Musk figured, was metal and fuel. Those didn't really cost that much. By the time we reached the Midtown Tunnel, we decided that it was possible. So now, with some belief in place, Musk decides to go to Russia and see if they could buy an initial rocket. His very first idea, the most basic original idea, was to send a greenhouse to Mars and ideally show people that life could survive there. If a greenhouse could survive on Mars, then it could support multi-planetary civilization. So this was his very first idea. He goes to Russia to see what would it cost to buy a rocket, and he comes back learning that the prices are absurd. He starts questioning, why are these prices so high? As he stewed about the absurd price the Russians wanted to charge, he employed some first principles thinking, drilling down to the basic physics of the situation and building up from there. This led him to develop what he called an idiot index, which calculated how much more costly a finished product was than the cost of its basic materials. If a product had a high idiot index, its cost could be reduced significantly by devising more efficient manufacturing techniques. Rockets had an extremely high idiot index. Musk began calculating the cost of carbon fiber, metal, fuel, 
and other materials that went into them. The finished product using current manufacturing methods cost at least 50 times more than that. So this is another key trait we will see from Musk again and again. He is always questioning commonly held assumptions. We see he goes to Russia, he sees the price to buy a rocket is crazy, and his first thought isn't, maybe I should walk away from my crazy idea. It is rather developing this theory of an idiot index. Why are the prices 50 times more than the actual materials? He decides, as he's sitting on the plane on his way home, to make his own spreadsheet. And on this spreadsheet, he's calculating the cost of building a rocket. He's putting together all the individual materials and parts that are necessary to build his rocket. And when he sees the end of his list, it's so much cheaper. He just says to himself, I guess this is the route that we're going to take. I guess we will simply need to build the rocket ourselves. This approach by people like Musk, I think is so fascinating. Anyone who's willing to take on this massive risk, build a rocket from the ground up from scratch yourself is usually going to be seen as crazy and certainly would be risking a lot of your capital in the process. But Musk, he simply doesn't care. He has a greater mission to accomplish. The arguments about the risk served to strengthen Musk's resolve. He liked risk. If you're trying to convince me that this has a high probability of failure, I am already there. The likeliest outcome is that I will lose all my money. But what's the alternative? That there will be no progress in space exploration? We've got to give this a shot, or we're stuck on Earth forever. I thought this section was simply incredible. We're seeing a world builder like Elon Musk or like Steve Jobs, they don't care. They will let no one convince them otherwise that they should pursue this mission. It becomes their one true goal, the main thing that they care about, and definitely at the expense of all the other areas in their life. Musk, his mission, as he would say, my mission in life is to make mankind a multi-planetary civilization. People come to him and say, you know the risk is crazy. What are you doing? Building a rocket from scratch? And he tunes that all out. It only makes him even more committed to pursuing this mission. So I think this is just such an interesting insight into the mind of Elon Musk. A world builder like him is always focused on that mission, will not let the risk associated, will not let the potential loss of capital, stop him from fulfilling that mission. Instead of launching large payloads as Lockheed and Boeing did, Musk would create a less expensive rocket for the smaller satellites that were being made possible by advances in microprocessors. He focused on one key metric, 
what it would cost to get each pound of payload into orbit. That goal of maximizing boost for the buck would guide his obsession with increasing the thrust of engines, reducing the mass of the rockets, and making them reusable. So for SpaceX, this idea of reusable rockets were one of the fundamental breakthroughs. Many people did not think it was possible before SpaceX, and they really pioneered the use of these reusable rockets. And a core way that they did that was that we're seeing he was trying to attack a different segment of the market. Jeff Bezos has a really great way to describe this. He would say differentiation is survival. So Musk is entering this very tough industry, an industry launching rockets that no one expects you to build rockets from scratch with limited capital and compete with long-held incumbents. He's approaching this existing market that everyone sees is unlikely for him to succeed in, but he's saying, I'm going to attack a different segment of the market. I'm going to focus on these smaller, less expensive rockets. I'm really going to optimize on the cost, and that is the way I'm going to attack a segment of the market that the big incumbents aren't focused on. Now that Musk had this ideal market segment in mind, he went out to find the right team. Musk asked Mueller whether he could build an engine as big as the TRW's TR-106 on his own. Mueller allowed that he had designed the injector and igniter himself, knew the pump system well, and with the team could figure out the rest. How much, Musk asked, would it cost? Mueller replied that TRW was doing it for $12 million. Musk repeated his question, how much would it cost? Now we're going to see Musk's mentality, question everything mentality, is going to start to apply to the cost. How can we make this very low-cost, reusable rocket? Well, we have to question every cost. Musk was laser-focused on keeping down costs. His focus on cost, as well as his natural controlling instincts, led him to want to manufacture as many components as possible in-house, rather than buy them from suppliers, which was then the standard practice in the rocket and car industries. At one point, SpaceX needed a valve, Mueller recalls, and the supplier said it would cost $250,000. Musk declared that was insane and told Mueller they should make it themselves. They were able to do so in months at a fraction of the cost. After a few years, SpaceX was making in-house 70% of the components of its rockets. This is the exact same trait that John D. Rockefeller had as well. As he was building his oil empire, we saw 
that he was ruthless about vertical integration so he could lower his per unit cost as much as possible. He would be operating his refining factory and he would see the woods next to his refining factory have plenty of trees. So that's how he would create his barrels or he would use his runoff excesses from the oil production methods to create Vaselines and different types of side products. So this idea of relentless vertical integration is something that John D. Rockefeller originally preached, and now we're seeing Elon Musk preach it as well. He is laser-focused on keeping his costs down so he could survive the long term. The lower the cost is for each of those rockets, well then, the more rocket attempts he has as this new startup, he expects some of them will fail in the early days, the more attempts he has to actually succeed. And his question everything mentality doesn't just stop at cost as well. I think this is something that's probably one of the most important ideas that comes from studying Elon Musk. We're going to see it throughout this episode. He actually calls this way of thinking the algorithm. So he basically will tell his engineers that they always have to be questioning those authorities. And the rule is whenever there is a requirement or a rule in place, let's say legally or the military defense department has created a certain rule or regulation, he tells his employees that not only do you have to question why that rule is in place, you have to go even further. You have to know who created the rule, literally their name, not just the organization, but the name of the person who created the rule and why they created the rule. In many of these rules in place, he tells his engineers, you simply should treat them as recommendations. Unless the rule was created due to physics, he only abides by the laws of physics. All other rules, you should be treating them as recommendations. So we will see again and again from Elon Musk, he is going to question all authorities. And that's how he's able to drive down costs so much. That's also how he's able to push such ambitious timelines onto his team. When some of his team members may tell them this is going to take five months to complete, he is immediately going to question that, even with some type of impossible deadline. Musk insisted on setting unrealistic deadlines even when they weren't necessary, such as when he ordered test stands to be erected in weeks for rocket engines that had not yet been built. A maniacal sense of urgency is our operating principle. So just like Steve Jobs with his reality distortion field, Elon Musk would also push his teams on these timelines that they felt were impossible. He would go to his teammates and whatever timeline schedule they gave him, he would practically like cut it in half give them a schedule that they felt like is literally not possible. There's no way they're able to accomplish this. And at times it could even 
demoralize these employees because they're thinking, how can we build a rocket in half of our estimated time? Well, oftentimes, maybe they don't hit Musk's ambitious target, but they do end up hitting a much faster target than what they originally estimated. And that is the true value of these wildly accelerated timelines that Steve Jobs and Elon Musk will constantly push out. They know that the crazy timeline may not be exactly what people are able to accomplish, but just having such an ambitious timeline, this urgency, maniacal urgency, is our operating principle. It's a forcing function on your team to perform at an excellent standard. As Musk's engineer would say, even though we failed to meet most schedules or cost targets that Elon laid out, we still beat all of our peers, Mueller admits. We developed the lowest cost, most awesome rockets in history, and we wound up feeling pretty good about it, even if dad wasn't always happy with us. Another key trait for Musk in these early days of SpaceX is what I call trial by fire. And that basically describes how he is oftentimes comfortable failing again and again, iterating on a problem until he reaches a solution, until he actually succeeds. He knows that missions like building rockets or revitalizing electric vehicles are going to take a few attempts and a few failures until you reach that success. So for Elon Musk, something he practices a lot is to fail fast and then iterate. So he is going to instruct his team, it's okay if we fail, but let's fail fast, learn from that failure, and then iterate so we could succeed in the future. Thus began a buddy movie in which a platoon of die-hard rocket engineers led by Mueller and Buzza with occasional visits by Musk ignited engines and set off explosions, which they dubbed rapid, unscheduled disassemblies. These are explosions. Rapid, unscheduled disassemblies. He is instructing his team, it is okay if we fail, it's okay if our rockets explode in the early days, as long as we keep learning and iterating, because the next one will be a success. And along the way, Musk is going out and finding talent. He's surrounding himself with really talented people, so SpaceX would become a success. One of the most important hires he made was in 2002 when he hired Gwen Shotwell. Gwen Shotwell would end up becoming the current president of SpaceX, really his partner in crime at SpaceX, and she is the one who really leads their business side. Musk focuses much more on the engineering, and Gwen Shotwell, she leads the business. She tries to sell satellite services and launch services to other companies, and she's the one directly dealing with those customers. The thing that stood out for Musk when he met Gwen Shotwell was that she was not afraid to speak her mind. She was very direct and candid 
in giving Musk feedback about the company. And that caused Musk to see this is not someone who's tiptoeing around me because I'm CEO or because I have power. So he ends up bringing on Gwen Shotwell and she makes an immediate impact. They were able to get a contract, the very first contract for SpaceX that provided them $3.5 million. And this was a small contract. Obviously, this is not going to be able to fund multiple rocket launches, but at least it just gave them a little bit of this runway. Now, Shotwell and Musk, they're thinking, how can we get the real contract that is going to give us the runway to build multiple rockets so we could build up a sustainable business? So they're looking around, they're looking for what is the right contract that fits this description? And they see that NASA is offering up a large, large contract. It is basically a $227 million contract. But as he's seeking out to win this contract and he's trying to secure SpaceX as the vendor for NASA's contract, he ends up learning that it was just suddenly awarded to another private rocket company, a competitor of SpaceX, this company called Kistler Aerospace. This awarding of the contract hissed off Elon Musk so much, he felt like they didn't run a competitive bidding process, they didn't give SpaceX the fair shot. So he got so pissed off that he proceeded to sue NASA. Who thinks about suing NASA? Elon Musk, he feels like he's been wronged. So he just decides, I'm going to sue NASA. This is potentially a life-changing contract for our company. And I know we could do it so much better than our competitor, Kistler Aerospace. They didn't run a competitive bidding process. They didn't hear us out. And now they don't know what we could do for them. So he goes, and in this lawsuit, he ends up winning a large portion of the contract. They have to reallocate the contract to different vendors, and he ends up winning over a large portion of this massive 200 million plus contract. The way he was able to convince people to listen to him this time was that he pitched fixed price contracts. This whole idea about fixed price contracts was so they could align the incentives with NASA. He was following Charlie Munger's advice, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. The way things were done before was that the incumbents had cost plus contracts. So they had contracts that incentivizes them to delay the project. That's how they get paid more. Well, Musk, he is coming into the scene as this upstart. He is counter-positioning the people around him by offering a new business model, a new fixed price contract where he assumes a lot of the risk. The problem with a cost plus system, he argued, was that it stymied innovation. If the project went over budget, the contractor would get paid more. I should repeat that. This is the misaligned incentive. If the project went over budget, the contractor would get paid more. 
there was little incentive for the cozy club of cost-plus contractors to take risks, be creative, work fast, or cut costs. Boeing and Lockheed just want their cost-plus gravy trains, he says. You just can't get to Mars with that system. They have an incentive never to finish. If you never finish a cost-plus contract, then you suckle on the tit of the government forever. SpaceX pioneered an alternative in which private companies bid on performing a specific task or mission, such as launching government payloads into orbit. The company risked its own capital, and it would be paid only if and when it delivered on certain milestones. This outcome-based, fixed-price contracting allowed the private company to control, within broad parameters, how its rockets were designed and built. There was a lot of money to be made if it built a cost-efficient rocket that succeeded and a lot of money to be lost if it failed. It rewards results rather than waste. So around the same time that Musk was trying to figure out how to build a reusable rocket, he was also still thinking about that electric vehicle market. He had his eyes on the EV market. And this is where I'm kind of going to be weaving between the stories of SpaceX and Tesla at the same time, because Musk in his own life built both of these groundbreaking companies at the same time. So I think the best way to tell the story is to kind of weave between both of these stories. Gage wanted to start by building a cheaper, boxier, slower car. That made no sense to Musk. Any initial version of an electric car would be expensive to build, at least $70,000 a piece. Nobody is going to pay anywhere near that for something that looks like crap, he argued. The way to get a car company started was to build a high-priced car first and later move to a mass-market model. So as Musk was first scouting the market for electric vehicles and meeting people like this individual Gage, seeing who he could partner with to build an electric car, he realized that some of the current players had the wrong mentality in place. Companies like AC Propulsion, they had this idea that maybe we should build a boxier, slow car, a very simple car. And Musk is thinking that, no, this is going to be very expensive to build. If we're revitalizing the electric car market, it is going to be a very expensive endeavor. So we should improve the public perception of electric cars. At the time, the masses looked at electric cars and saw the quality of them as fairly low quality shit types of vehicles. Well, Elon Musk is realizing no one's going to pay for something that looks like crap. I need to create something that even if it's expensive, it is naturally this luxury high-end vehicle. This really fits well 
with what Clayton Christensen described in the Innovator's Dilemma episode. He would share that if you want to beat the incumbents and your product is limited at first, your technology is limited, we know electric cars would be more expensive and not have the range or capabilities of the ICE gas-powered cars, well, you have to find a market that simply doesn't care about that limit. Into Musk, he figured that the right market is this luxury car market. People care about a nice, high-quality looking car rather than the car that's going to take them to all their activities on one charge. They're not looking at the capabilities. We know they're looking at some of the other factors. Maybe it's convenience that Clayton Christensen would often point at. In this case, I think it's the status. It's that luxury status. So Musk, he's still searching for the right people to partner with, the people who want to build an electric car focused on that luxury market. And luckily, he runs into the exact right people. He ends up meeting Martin Eberhard and Mark Tarpening, who had the same vision as Musk. They devised a plan to start with a high-end, open-body, two-seat roadster and later build cars for the mass market. I wanted to make a sporty roadster that would absolutely change the way that people think about electric cars, Eberhardt said. They're trying to change the perception. And then use it to build a brand. So these two individuals, Martin Eberhardt and Mark Tarpening, were the original co-founders of Tesla. And as they were working on this idea in the very early days, they met with Elon Musk, who ended up becoming their very first financial backer. So he came in, he gave them a 6.4, roughly $6.5 million investment, and thus, now they had Elon Musk as the early team member. He really ended up becoming a co-founder since this was such an early company, but even more so because we know Elon Musk is always seeking control. This was a company that was run by Eberhard, but yet Musk walked in and he had tons and tons of suggestions. One of the most important decisions that Elon Musk made about Tesla, the defining imprint that led to its success and its impact on the auto industry, was that it should make its own key components rather than piecing together a car with hundreds of components from independent suppliers. Tesla would control its own destiny, quality, costs, and supply chain by being vertically integrated. Creating a good car was important. Even more important was creating the manufacturing processes and factories that can mass produce them from the battery cells to the body. But that's not the way the company began. Just the opposite. We know that Musk loves his vertical integration so he could control his own destiny. But in these early days of Tesla, Musk was not in control. The person who was in charge, the person who was CEO, was Martin Eberhardt. And Eberhardt, when they first went out to make the Roadster, he took 
the conventional approach of outsourcing many of their key parts. He was following the likes of everyone else in the auto industry and deciding to outsource their own main parts. Musk wasn't really happy about this. He wants to have that full control over their costs, full control over their supply chain, but he decides to kind of back off and let Eberhard do his thing. It's the very early days. He's testing out, letting someone else be in control, and let's kind of see where this will go, see what will happen. But as the mid-2000s continue to progress, just more and more tension builds between Musk and Eberhardt. He was really building over who simply is in control. Musk has this natural instinct to keep demanding control. He would show up to meetings. He would ask for many design changes to the car. He wanted to improve the look. He saw this as a luxury vehicle, so he wanted the look of the Roadster to be impeccable. Whereas Eberhard, he simply was outsourcing so many parts and he was saying, it's going to waste our time and it's going to create complications if we try to customize too many components. Musk is hearing this and he's thinking, what do you mean? We should be controlling our own costs. Maybe we should vertically integrate if that's the case. And what really started to piss off Musk was that Eberhard would not refer to him as a co-founder. He would only refer to him as a financial backer, as an investor. This really came to a head, these battles between the two of them, when they first released the Roadster. So they were able to use these outsourcing strategies to build up what they call a development mule an initial product, like prototype of the car to show the masses, raise money off of. Their long-term goal was really vertical integration, but they build this development mule of the Roadster and they hold this public press release to show it off to crowds. And now everyone is amazed by this great looking luxury electric car. The event got glowing coverage. This is not your father's electric car, the Washington Post raved. The $100,000 vehicle with its sports car looks is more Ferrari than Prius and more about testosterone than granola. There was, however, one problem. Eberhard got almost all the credit. So Musk is really starting to get heated because they are getting these press releases in big news publications like the Washington Post, the New York Times wrote a profile, and everyone is referring to Eberhard as this great innovator, this founder is revitalizing the EV market, and people are barely even mentioning Elon Musk. He's seeing this and he's thinking, I'm practically a co-founder. I've contributed so much for this company. Yet, they continue to still keep their peace, kind of go along. Things are going well with Tesla. The company is progressing. So he lets Eberhard keep getting the credit. And this is just like tension building, tension building, mid-2000s, 2005, 2006. Well, by July 2007, that's when the production for the Tesla Roadster really had to ramp up. They had taken a lot of pre-orders for the car, so the production has to finally ramp up so they could start 
making these deliveries. And now Musk was starting to see his trust in Eberhard was poorly placed. The cost for the Tesla Roadster had spiraled out of control. It had practically doubled. And Musk is really starting to worry, is the person who's in charge of the company the right man for the job? He would go to Eberhard and ask him, how are you working on improving this cost? How are you tracking this cost? And he would come to realize Eberhard wasn't even tracking the bill of materials. The bill of materials is like a list of all the parts and costs for the car. Well, Eberhard didn't even have a bill of materials for the car. He also wasn't really thinking about some of the cash flow issues of outsourcing. When they had to outsource so many key parts of the car, they were paying cash flow up front to secure some of those parts, but it would oftentimes take many months, like up to nine months, for those parts to actually arrive. So this was becoming another big issue for Tesla. They were seeing costs rapidly escalating, doubling in price, over 120000 per car, cash flow issues, no bill of materials, no real tracking over the cost of the car as it's rising so fast. So finally, Elon decides to pull the plug. He has a pretty honest conversation with Eberhard where they both agree that he should step aside. He's not doing the right job and they'll search for a new CEO. But things got so bad that Musk just immediately kicked him out. He burned the relationship. They have a very contentious relationship still to today because he felt like we need to have some urgency. We have these massive issues on hand and we need to solve them immediately. And he doesn't really learn his lesson right away. He actually puts another person in as CEO, doesn't learn his lesson that he needs total control. Musk needs total control. That is the inevitable outcome. During their debates over Mark's proposal to outsource assembly of the Tesla, Musk became increasingly angry and he had no natural filter to restrain his responses. That's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard, he said at a couple of meetings. That was a line that Steve Jobs used often. So did Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. Their brutal honesty could be unnerving, even offensive. It could constrict rather than encourage honest dialogue. But it also was effective at times in creating what Jobs called a team of A players who didn't want to be around fuzzy thinkers. So you may be starting to realize that this 2008 picture was pretty bleak for Elon Musk. At Tesla, they were running out of cash. They were having many of these production issues and leadership issues with their Roadster schedule. And over at SpaceX, it really wasn't going much better. They had been working on launching their first fully built rocket, the Falcon 1 rocket. And on the very first launch, they see it go up in the air. It flies for 30 seconds. And then as it's in the air, they start to see a fire leak that's going to take the rocket down. 
It's the sad outcome where the very first rocket, they've spent years, obviously a lot of capital invested in it, and only a minute into the launch, they have to abort the mission. Well, we know Musk has that fail-fast mentality. He sees that it's going down, and Musk's reaction is simply, we'll build another one. And then they go for round two. They build the Falcon 1 rocket again, their second launch. They see it go up in the air, and what do we know? It fails again. And now Musk is saying, round three is really our last shot. This is really, we only have the capital resources for one more launch. We've invested so much into this. Let's make sure our Falcon 1 launch, the third time's a charm, let's make sure this one succeeds. And the last one crashes again. His reaction to this, I thought, was just excellent. He was not ready to give up. Instead, he would go for broke, literally. SpaceX will not skip a beat in execution going forward. There should be absolutely zero question that SpaceX will prevail in reaching orbit. I will never give up. And I mean never. As God is my bloody witness, I'm hell-bent on making it work. He has now tried and failed his first three Falcon 1 rocket launches at SpaceX, also running out of cash the exact same time at Tesla. And luckily, his PayPal mafia friends come in at the last second and give him a lifeline. They invest $20 million into the company, and this practically gives SpaceX one last shot at their rocket launch. So truly, the fourth rocket launch is what feels like their last shot, and we know Musk is telling the entire team, this is going to happen. We are destined to reach orbit. Well, he was right. Falcon 1 had made history as the first privately built rocket to launch from the ground and reach orbit. Musk and his small crew of just 500 employees, Boeing's comparable division had 50,000, had designed the system from the ground up and done all the construction on its own. Little had been outsourced, and the funding had also been private, largely out of Musk's own pocket. SpaceX had contracts to perform missions for NASA and other clients, but they would get paid only if and when they succeeded. There were no subsidies or cost-plus contracts. So finally, with this successful launch, the fourth launch of the Falcon 1 rocket, things were starting to look promising for SpaceX. They were the first private company to launch a rocket into orbit, and we know they're trying to build this mission of literally sending human species to Mars, building a human civilization on Mars. The first step was to build these low-cost reusable rockets, and now with the successful demonstration, he could actually secure a long-term contract. On December 22nd, 
as if to ring down the curtain on the horrible year of 2008, Musk got a call on his cell phone. NASA spaceflight chief Bill Gersten Mayer, who would later end up at SpaceX, gave him the news. SpaceX was going to be awarded a $1.6 billion contract to make 12 round trips to the space station. I love NASA, Musk responded. You guys rock. Then he changed his password for his computer login to I love NASA. <laughs> 